Welcome to Hobby Horse. I'm Matt Howie. Today with me is uh, Andy Bayo, I've known for 20 damn years, probably, right? Hi, Matt. Hello. <laughs> That's my welcome. Uh, the new XOXO has returned. It's uh, launching today and... Uh, what is the deal going to be for 10 days people can apply? That's the that's the plan, kind of extending out the that uh, survey period. This is the sixth year of doing the festival. We took, uh, we took last year off to kind of regroup and think about where we wanted to go. And the whole thing is always an experiment. So, uh, yeah. It's, was 10 days uh, unusual? Was it shorter before? It was. It was a week before. Oh, okay. Uh, we figured, you know since we've been gone for a while and coming back and kind of growing it, uh, give it, give people a chance. The most frustrating thing I found was telling friends about it. Uh, maybe, you know, acquaintances about it that didn't know you personally. And they were like, Oh, that sounds rad. Um, and it's like in August, Hey, how do I get a ticket for next month's event? And I was like, man, you had, you had a one week window, you know, six yeah, months ago. I, it, since the first year in 2012, I mean, it, it, it just, uh, has sold out pretty much instantly, which is why we started doing the survey system to, to help uh, kind of control uh, the demand and, and make sure that people don't have to rush to get Yeah, that went uh, for a month, right? The first year was the, was the only one that was um, like first come, first serve because it was a Kickstarter project. But um, yeah, even, even uh, like WWDC has moved. <laughs> like everyone is kind of moving. Moving to this lottery system is just a lot more fair uh, in general. Otherwise, it just it biases towards uh, people that you know happen to be online at that moment and have the resources and like, ready to <laughs> Australia. go. It really biases against uh, international people. And this is your first stop on the press tour. How's it going? It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of hilarious. Uh, yeah. So yeah, like let's entice people. Why should they go? I mean, I know it's rad and it's great and it's in Portland. And it's in September sixth to ninth or something. September sixth to ninth this year. Uh, we have. And a- who are your big? Big keynote guess. The the I mean the the whole idea around the the festival is it is celebrating independent art and and technology and the people that are making uh, keeping the internet interesting and doing uh, doing interesting things and and making a living uh, primarily independently building fan building fan following online, but then over the years what so much of what it became about was the, the, the challenges that come with that. You can't just talk about the successes. I mean, real, realistically, it's, it's a really difficult thing to do to, to try to be independent online. And, um, and so we ended up covering a lot of the, the issues that come from, uh, from living and working uh, on the internet and like being on the internet. So we, we would cover things like imposter syndrome or, or mental health. We'd cover... Uh, online harassment pretty heavily. We'd cover uh, uh, financial anxiety and insecurity. Uh, you know, all of these things that that kind of come along with that territory. Uh, and so we've the the for people unfamiliar with it, we have two days of conference talks, which is kind of the, the heart of the uh, of the festival. And then, but really, that's only a small part of what the overall thing is. We do dedicated uh, uh, events, uh, primarily in the evenings for. Uh, an event called Arcade, which is all independent video games. We have Tabletop, which is all tabletop games. We bring the game designers there. You're playing with them, uh, uh, often playing unreleased games, uh, sometimes for the first time. Uh, we have dedicated events for live podcasts called Story. We have um, an event for film and animation, which is all kind of, you know, in, largely internet online video projects. Uh, this year, for the first time, we're adding two new events, uh, one called Art and Code, uh, which is all creative code kind of projects and one for comics um how are you going to display code demos like they're people they're people talking about their work primarily okay uh and some some of it's kind of performance um but the uh the the highlights i feel so weird this is literally the first time i've told anybody uh (laughs) outside of outside of our own uh the people working on it who's who's going to be there but we we have so some of the highlights uh, of speakers we have um uh, Hari Kondabalu uh, is going to be coming and talking about his work and and the whole Apu controversy. Uh, we have uh, Johnny Sun. Uh, we have Demi Adijuibe, who Electro Lemon on on Twitter. If you're not familiar with his work, his his video parody parody and like rap parody stuff is. Is he going to make a Will Smith closing credits for EXO? He's doing something, but I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. Um, 
We have the creators of Reductress, Beth Newell and uh, Sarah Papalardo. We have Matt Fury, the guy who, the uh, cartoonist who created Pepe the Frog, Ooh. which was appropriated by the alt-right, and uh, and he has fought it ever since. Uh, we have Ijeoma Luo, who uh, is uh, uh, from the establishment. She uh, she wrote a book called So You Want to Talk About Race, which is outstanding. Uh, Open Mike Eagle, rapper who performed at uh, XOXO in 2015. We're bringing him back as a speaker this time. Uh, Claire Evans, uh, who performed oh, nice. as, as part of Yacht yep. uh, in 2014, or 20, I think 2013. And uh, she just put out a book called Broadband, which is about the kind of untold stories of women who helped create the internet. So she's going to be talking about that. Adam Conover from Adam Ruins Everything. Uh, we have Jennifer A. Lee from, uh, uh, she's done a lot of amazing things, but she is, she's kind of pioneered uh, inclusion uh, efforts in Emoji. Um, we have Jean Grey, uh, uh, a rapper who's going to be performing uh, later that night with uh, John Hodgman. She does a variety show called uh, called Jean and John. Uh, so we've got all these, you know, the, the conference uh, uh, lineup is already, it's amazing. And, and one thing I should point out is really only, we announce only like 60% or so of the lineup. And it kind of, as, as interesting things emerge in the, you know, leading up to the festival, I, I often like... Book, book stuff last minute and bring, st- bring stuff in and there's a lot of surprises that come in can you think of any of the the night guests for like like who's, yeah yeah who's so like a coder uh, a film a music like which podcasts are going to show up there's so many uh great things that i'm excited about the uh for for story we have uh we have lo- the first i believe it's the first live uh episode of this is love uh by phoebe judge and lawrence poor they're also doing a live criminal uh, episode. Sweet. We have Feminist Frequency Radio uh, with uh, with Anita Sarkeesian and uh, uh, Carolyn Petit and Ebony Adams. We have a live friendshiping with Jen and Trin, uh, which is I'm just so excited about for for the uh, Art and Code uh, thing, which is a new new event. We have uh, Botnik Studios. They're, they've done oh, cool. the predictive keyboard comedy stuff, like X uh, Clickhole people. They're going to be doing they're going to be doing something live. We have Janelle Shane, who's done those amazing like AI. Uh, it's called AI weirdness, but she does like all these uh, neural network driven uh, uh, like naming experiments and things. Uh, mm-hmm. the, w- the woman who did the CSS oil paintings, Diana Smith, is going to come out oh, and talk sweet. about the response to her work. Uh, Nicole Hay, uh, who did uh, who did True Love Tinder Robot, Soylent Dick, and the best <laughs> art, and she's like she's going to come and talk about her work. Uh, um, Roberta Baldwin and Darth are collaborating on a project. Uh, yeah, so uh, there's just so much. Uh, uh, Glitch, uh, Jen Schiffer and Anil uh, Dash are going to be uh, showing some stuff in the Glitch community, and I think Sweet. some people out. There's a lot of. There's just a lot. Oh, and comics. Are they just going to like display the comics or like? It's going to be. Uh, it's going to be a mix of kind of talk and performance. Uh, um, yeah, we've got uh, that lineup still coming together. We've got uh, you're probably familiar with Alex Norris, who does webcomic name or Doris McComics. The, uh, the oh, oh no, yeah, oh no. <laughs> uh, Zoe Quinn just announced her new uh, comics project uh, called Goddess Mode, and she's going to be coming out to talk about that. Sweet. Super exciting. Uh, the arcade lineup is incredible. I mean, I, I could I could get into it, but it's like uh, I already have like uh, over a dozen games that are some of the most interesting. Unrele- all unreleased uh, independent games that are coming up, and we project them huge on the walls. So there's just a lot, and then tabletop is uh, the the whole, I, I'm Everything's so excited good. about this lineup. <laughs> it's it's it really is uh, uh, just some of the best of of what's uh, what's on the internet in the in the internet, and um, and a lot of it this year came from uh, came from our community suggestions. We have a suggestions channel in our in our uh, growing Slack team. And, uh, you know, we, we reached out to, uh, to the community, asked what they would like to see. And, and so they came up, I mean, it was funny because sometimes they'd book a thing or like they'd ask for a thing and I'd already booked it. I don't want to, I don't want to reveal that, uh, right then, but yeah, it's, uh, they're just an amazing group of people and, and being able to be in there day in and out, day in and day out with, uh, with this, uh, this community, They've self-formed in hundreds of different channels. It's really this you know, kind of vibrant place to be that, that kind of gives gives us hope every day. It's a, uh, it's pretty. It's been really tough. I mean, uh, the last XOXO was uh, two months before the 2016 election, <laughs> and and so you know it's been a, like last year 
was a really rough year to not have XOXO, but it also would have been, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine what oh, that would have yeah. been like. So that's, that's what's going on. Uh, uh, you have to uh, uh, submit a survey to, to be able to attend. You've got uh, uh, 10 days to do it, uh, starting, uh, this is, well, hopefully this is, uh, this is out today. So. And it's like, how much does it cost, a ticket? These, this year. Uh, tickets have stayed the same price uh, since 2013. It's $500 to attend. Uh, gets you into absolutely everything. And uh, and if you cannot afford that, we have, uh, we've significantly increased the number of our subsidized passes that are covered by patrons, and those are available for free. So... Uh, 500 seems cheap, to be honest. <laughs> well, you know, it's it, it's all relative, right? I mean, it's uh, you know, five hundred dollars for uh, for someone that's working in independent web comics is very different than than you know someone that that has an established career and yeah. uh, dedicated you know. Resources. I'm sort of so, comparing it to three or four days solid of stuff to do. Usually costs like eight hundred to a thousand bucks. You know. Yeah, I mean, we we you know we we uh, we fly in. I mean, we do a. We do a lot. Uh, we're publishing a big uh, a big post about our kind of accessibility and inclusion and diversity efforts and everything that we do from you know free on site childcare, children attend for free. We do uh, you know, live captioning of everything. We're giving away you know uh, uh, hundreds of of passes for free to people who wouldn't be able to attend otherwise. We do uh, we do a lot. Um, we fly in, you know, it's going to be like 150 <laughs> artists and performers this year, and and and, uh, and put them up in hotels. We pay all of our conference speakers. Uh, I mean, it's there's a lot. Uh, and uh, and this is what you're work. You've been working on this for almost nine months or so. Yeah, it's been a it's been it's been an effort, and uh, and so there's a lot of surprises. Uh, new venue this year. Everything under one roof. Uh, it's, uh, I, I hope people, I hope, I hope people are excited by it. It's a, you know, the whole thing's an experiment and we kind of try new things and see, uh, see what works and what doesn't work. And a lot of the most exciting things people are really only going to find out when they, when they show up, we're not even announcing them. So we'll see how it goes. Sweet. But we're not going to talk about that today. Um, we're going to talk about, um, you have a billion side projects. Um, too many, you know, you, um, you, you and I both goof around and put up everything we do. Uh, and I think um, it wasn't too hard for me to choose <laughs> a side subject for you of the many. Um, but it is something I've always wanted to grill you on, which was, uh, I think, uh, last time I was at your uh, uh, office, you were showing off like your collection of original Infocom text adventure games in boxes with the original documentation and coupons and everything from like 1982. And I had no idea you had these things and that you had so many of these things. So I want to talk about text adventure games. Uh, you know, what draws you into them? What still keeps you going on them? I want to talk about Playfic and the, the, you know, the, the whole little community you built about it, uh, over, uh, around it. Um, and so, yeah, like, uh, like when did you get started with text adventure games? My first exposure to text adventure games was uh, was when I was a kid. My very first computer game uh, was I, I remember it distinctly. Like the first one that I uh, that I bought myself with my money. I mean, it's like always gift money, right? Was a uh, was was Zork Two uh, by Infocom, and at that point, I was sort of on like growing up at the at the towards the end of the text adventure era. Uh, and and so there were graphical adventure games on the shelves, but there was something so compelling about uh, the description of these games. Obviously, there's no screenshots on the packaging, but it just sounded so fascinating. Like, what could this be? And it was more compelling to me than than looking at, you know, a uh, very low <laughs> resolution, you know, pic- uh pixel art screenshot of a of a, a graphical uh, adventure game at the time and so i was just like there was something about that 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 you know i don't even know I'm probably 10 years old 11 years old that i was drawn to is it like 1985 ish uh that sounds yeah i mean that sounds uh, about right um, is this like a commodore 64 commodore, or yeah commodore 64 now my, my first computer was a vic 20 and i'd played i had played some text adventure games on cartridges uh for that my like an Initially, I started with Atari 2600, but I my family 
got a VIC-20, uh, which was Commodore's, you know, kind of low-end model. And uh, and so my, the first text adventures that I ever played, and I didn't like them very much, but uh, but the first that I played were were by uh, a guy named Scott Adams, and the, they were on cartridges. The display was really bad. I think I just didn't have the literacy uh, to be able to, to play them well. Um, they were also just sort of brutally hard, and there was no walkthrough or anything at the time. There's no chance to, to... You'd hit a wall, and that was it. It was over. So I never got very far, and I didn't really enjoy them uh, that much when I was that young. I remember, you know, like lit- literacy mattered so much. I remember uh, there was a puzzle that just baffled me, and I never, I didn't find out for years what it meant. But there was a dumbwaiter in in a room that you had to put a thing inside, or actually you, you had to write inside of it. Which, it, after knowing what a dumbwaiter is, it doesn't even make sense. But there was a, you know, there's this thing. I was like a dumbwaiter. I know what a waiter is. <laughs> What's is this a kitchen? It doesn't. I I, I couldn't make any sense of it, and. Uh, yeah, so so there's like a certain amount of you know literacy that's that's required to play a text adventure, uh, but anyway, so yeah, Zork, Zork Two, The Wizard of Frobos. I, there was something about it. I picked it up and and took it home, and I was just like, God, this is it's just uh, uh, there was something incredible about it. Uh, Infocom is is at the time it's hard to to underestimate how dominant that they were for for say like computer game sales. They they would just they would have, you know, eight out of the ten top ten best-selling games uh, on the charts, and they were their games were evergreen because they weren't dependent on on graphics. So there was this time where they just did, they did so well, and and uh, they were really well written. Uh, they'd sometimes collaborate with authors, but most of the time they were written internally uh, by their team. And uh, and one of the things that they were best known for was their uh, was their packaging. Uh, you you mentioned like coupons or whatever. It, they they called them feelies, uh, and these <laughs> and these feelies would be like there'd be a newspaper that's all sort of in the world of the game. Or there's a game called Plundered Hearts that's a that's a like a, a, a kind of a pirate romance, and it has like you know pieces of eight and a map like a treasure map and a and a little uh, a little velvet bag and like all of this stuff is designed to kind of it's all around r- world building. It's the it's the the reason that a lot of you know uh, people are into like still into like you know uh disney disney line line you know uh like the queues at uh, at disneyland or tiki bars or whatever there's something there's something about that uh like creating the props the detail like just enough sketch of a detail to make you you know feel like this thing exists um and so yeah i loved i loved that and it's uh, but i was sort of like i said i was sort of on the the end of that era, and I start, you know, the the graphical adventure games, uh, and then every other, you know, graphic based uh, uh, video game really, really started becoming the dominant, uh, uh, like dominating the medium and text adventures. The commercial text adventure uh, uh, world just sort of collapsed uh, for years, years and years. I mean, it's basically still, <laughs> still dead. Um, was the was the progression like? I remember text adventure games. I remember playing Zork. Um, probably on a school computer and then later on a Commodore 64. And then, like, I didn't play the mid-'80s and late-'80s stuff like Leisure Suit Larry. Wasn't there just, like, a like a static shot of what it, the text was describing? And then it, they eventually became more, you know, yeah, they, it, like motion. In, in order to survive, uh, the the creators of text adventure games, those companies needed to adapt. Uh and so they started by, by having uh, they're all parser based games, right? So you would you'd type a, a command, some sort of you know usually like a, a verb and a noun. Is it go like a, a get lamp, uh, you know, or go west or uh, examine sword? Um, and so they're all parser based, and they were you know they, the parsers got better over time, but uh, it was pretty naive. Uh, typically, they couldn't understand sentences or anything like that you really had to to write in a way that the that the, the parser could understand um and so they started to, to, uh, uh, evolving the genre uh infocom included by uh by having graphics on screen uh that were sort of representing the the, the room that you were in and uh and that you know there were some great games that came out of out of that kind of era but it was really like it was still a parser based game um and the you know that was 
it was not going to 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 last in in a world where point and click adventure games were a thing that that existed. Uh, you 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 had you had that era. There's a company called Legend Entertainment that was started by two former um, Infocom. Now I should say I'm not an expert. Uh, I just want to. I, I feel, in fact, I feel I feel a little bit like a fraud for talking about this. Yes, I like I care I care about text adventures. I'm I'm not an expert. Uh, I you know I I'm a fan of the of the genre, but I you know I haven't even you know I, I have never written one. Uh, I've never uh, I, I haven't even relatively speaking I haven't even played that many. They're very time intensive. I've played a bunch, but you know it's like. I can only I can only speak to my my personal experience here. <laughs> You've and, only put thirty eight years into text adventure games. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's a, this is the this is the problem with like doing this is so what's sort of hilarious about like the idea of doing a podcast about about people that are obsessed about something is that online you always know where you sort of stand in the obsessive spectrum and someone is always way more hardcore than you. It's not obsessed. I mean, it's like, it's a hobbies, but obsession helps. I think that's right. It's yeah. It steers towards obsession, but it doesn't have to. For me, it's a, it's a hobby. Uh, and it's something, it's something that I love and I love it for a bunch of, a bunch of reasons, but yeah. Uh, so anyway, there, you know, there was sort of this progression, uh, and there's overlap and so on. Uh, so I'm simplifying it, but, but going from the kind of, uh, uh, hybrid, uh, graphic and, and parser based game where, you know, there'd be a, there'd be an image on screen of the kind of room you, that you were in. Sometimes you'd be able to click on it to select an object, uh, rather than, rather than just guess at what was in the room or what you can interact with. But then the 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 mode, the model of the point and click adventure game really really became the thing that took off. And there was a there was a hybrid there where there'd be a list of nouns at the bottom of the screen. Hmm. Uh, Maniac Mansion, you know, Secret Monkey Island and uh, and so on. And then eventually you didn't even have the 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 verbs on the screen. So uh and then the adventure game itself was sort of you know the 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 golden years of the of the adventure game have have passed and now there are there are new models for adventures that and and you know it's still it's still around but it really it was not what it was when it was like a dominant the dominant uh uh genre uh, it feels like it's gotten baked into first person shooters and other stuff like everything has an epic story now that used to you just used to run around and shoot people in the face and now there's like this overarching you know, story that's kind of feels like mist or something, but you have a gun. Um, that's how, you know, most Xbox yeah, games feel some, this day. Some games do a, do a great job with this. I, like, I think, I think a game like Firewatch, uh, yeah, it's an adventure game, but you know, you, because it's sort of first person mode, people don't maybe think of it in those, uh, in those terms. When you say adventure game, I think most people think, you know, of, of the 2d, era of point and click adventure games when you talk about text adventure or interactive fiction most people think of kind of the graphical the, uh, sorry the uh, uh, the kind of text parser parser based eras but the i mean the reason that i ended up staying interested uh in this is that long after infocom you know kind of fell apart and the story of how it fell apart is so weird too but anyway the uh it's what happened is when when adventure when text adventure games were no longer like a commercially viable uh, thing in the way that they had been. The 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 community post internet uh, really the commu- like a community formed around it and and it was a lot it was a community entirely uh, almost entirely non commercial and hobbyist uh, driven. They were building the tools. They were creating uh, forums. They were creating uh, platforms to publish these things on. They were creating competitions around them, and it is a vibrant and still is a is a is a vibrant uh, you know community around uh, around this this medium. And some some people you know incorporate graphics. Some some are choice based, kind of choose your own adventure. Some are parser based. There's, it's kind of exploded in all of its all of its different forms, but, uh, but it's really just driven by, by passion, uh, of the people that are doing this. And so every single year you'll have a comp, there's multiple competitions. The most popular one is called IF comp where people submit all of their, their interactive fiction, small game, largely small games, 
um, and and community votes on them, and like anybody can enter, and then and then you end up just uh, uh, seeing the the end result, which is uh, this explosion of creativity every single year. And what's so unusual about the inter- interactive fiction now they call it interactive fiction. Text adventures is like you know really kind of narrow for for what this entire uh, world is now. Um, so. The, the nomenclature is sort of shifted to interactive fiction. That's what IF in IF comp stands for. Um, but it is this fusion of art and code. It's, it's, uh, you know, it is, it's, if you can write, you can make a game. Like you don't have to, you don't have to, uh, um, you know, be able to do graphics and animation. You don't have to be able to do 3d programming. You don't have to be able to do, like, they're all, uh, almost all of them are done by a single person. Right. And, and often in their spare time, it has to be able to, to be that way to support a to support a hobbyist you know community, and uh, and so yeah that's that that accessibility that that kind of democratizing function of it all uh, with free tools some that require very little technical sk- uh, technical skill to to do a basic game something like Twine, which is uh, choice based and published on the web uh, to more kind of complex languages like Inform Seven, which is what Playfic is you know kind of built on top of. Uh, it's it's something that if you're just interested in it, you can do it, and uh, that's has just been something that I I adore. It's the it's the kind of the auteur. To, to me, it reminds me of the early days of it's it's what I love about indie gaming now. But it's what a lot of you know gaming game development was in in the earliest days, which is which was that uh, you know it was designer developer the writer whatever they're all the same person you know it's one person it's like the singer songwriter. Of, of of gaming, they're coming up with the thing. They're recording it. They're making you know they're uh, they're making it and they're putting it out and publicizing it. Um, and they get to care about every aspect of it, right? And so it's a it's just a really cool thing. And there's so much like m- most of my favorite works of interactive fiction uh, came out in that era, the modern the modern era. Uh, I, I have fondness for a lot of that the old thing, uh, the old games, especially the, the kind of world building and kind of budget that went into, uh, to making, to mar- making and marketing those things. But, uh, but it's really what the community has continued to do now that keeps me interested in it. What's really remarkable is the collapse of time in computer stuff. It's just so it just doesn't really uh, map to physical space or even the structure of our laws. Like, I think uh, I think the heyday is like early 80s for text adventures. And I, I'm thinking of this, uh, you know, Infocom implodes probably in the early 90s. And I feel like it was the early 2000s when all the IF competitions started and people started sort of rebuilding these things. And that, like, it's like 20 years since the, you know, 20 years after the introduction of like Zork and stuff uh, was like, the revival um and it's nuts um did uh you started you did zork bots on aim oh my gosh AIM yeah chats okay. in early 2000s did you ever get like legal heat for that or was it just no. like a pain in the butt to keep them up no i never i never did uh yeah so so there was a period of time where like before twitter bots you know the, the when when you would say oh i made a bot people would be like oh it's on aol instant messenger right yeah smarter child and you know all those and so I made, uh, I used a, a, an open source bot library uh, to make an AIM bot, building on top of someone else's uh, uh, Z code parser, a Unix command line uh, uh, parser for these games to, to kind of patch them together loosely to, to let people play classic text adventure games uh, in AOL Instant Messenger. And I, I was able to like patch in like saving and restoring a game. I, I built like a it little menu. It worked remarkably well. There was a little menu system, so you could pick the game. Initially, it was just a, a, a Zork bot, and then and then it became info like Infocom bot, which uh, wasn't even accurate because I, I had more than just Infocom games in there. I, had, I ended up putting some homebrew stuff in there. And then you had like four bots or five bots running at once. Was that for capacity? Uh, I had to run multiple because what would happen is AOL, uh, unless you had some sort of magic corporate whitelisting they would uh, uh people would I, I never got a clear answer from this but my impression was that there'd be like trolly little kids that uh that were like and they, they would warn it you could warn a bot 
oh, right. uh, if they if they messaged you. Rate so, limits. So I don't know what I don't know what happened. But yeah, they would rate limit they'd rate limit the bot, it would get taken offline. I'd talk to someone that was at AOL and they're like, Oh, we think we took care of it, I'd be able to bring it back online. Uh they tried to whitelist it and I don't know what you know, I don't know what happened. But uh and then, you know, eventually it just became moot. I don't know if uh I mean it's a bummer that AIM isn't even around anymore, but um like I showed my wife once, you know, probably in 2003 or something. And she had it like in the sidebar of her buddies list for, you know, the next five years. And she would play it, you know, like an hour a week. She'd just be playing Zorik. <laughs> and it was, it was, it worked really well. It worked surprisingly well. Like, you know, there's one line of text, there's, you know, a few lines of description and you put in your inputs, like it all made sense. Well, and the, yeah, this ended up being kind of one of the one of the incredible things about about sticking with text is that you you don't know how people are going to use it, but it's the most kind of accessible. Uh, uh, it's one of the most accessible types of of games, right? So, so they've been uh, there are uh, there are parsers for every. It's been ported to every possible platform, uh, computing platform. There are you know. Uh, not quite an emulator. It's a, uh, I mean, the whole thing I think was sort of built in a, in a virtual machine. Um, uh, Infocom built like in order, to, because because there was no like one platform uh, at the time. There's all these microcomputers, uh, and they they need they wanted to write it once and have it kind of run everywhere as easily as they could. They created a uh, a virtual machine for called Z Machine for for Z Code uh, games to run on top of. I that might be a little loose and sorry to anybody smarter than me that's, li- that's listening. Um, but, uh, but the end result of that was that, is that, uh, it, it made it something that was possible for people, hobbyists largely to be able to port it and, and bring that up to, up to date every, uh, to every possible platform. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, so bringing it into a texted, uh, bring it into, uh, uh, instant messaging was pretty natural. I, I know that there's been Slack bots uh, that have that have run Z Code games. I know that uh, there've been Twitter there've been Twitter bots. There've been people have written uh, uh, versions of this for discussion forums. So it'll like post as a as a person, and then you'll have the entire community like saying "Get Lamp," you know, and like as posting posting messages in a in threads and having the game work. Uh, I, and another fascinating thing about the the uh, kind of the medium of text adventures as gaming is that it's incredibly accessible to the blind. Huh. So, uh, which you know, you don't think about, but you watch. Uh, um, Jason Scott did a uh, years ago did a did a documentary called Get Lamp, which is entirely about uh, kind of the, the the past and the the present future of of text adventure games. Has a big featurette about the Infocom. And, and their kind of important impact. But he, he interviewed a, 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 you know, at least one, I think two uh, avid uh, blind game, game players uh, who you know, talked about how it meant, I mean, what that meant to them to be able to, <laughs> to, be able to, to you know, play these games and at the time that were brand new, uh, but even rediscovering them now and being able to participate in kind of the modern, that modern gaming scene pretty pretty powerful i'm glad that like screen readers worked on those early systems yeah i mean they're definitely like theaters of the mind kind of games so it makes perfect sense uh if you have a good screen reader that you could play along with it just just like it is um when did you start play thick i can't remember when did i start play thick i started uh i started play thick well i i had been kind of batting around the idea for for a while it didn't launch until 2012 I, uh, okay. and, and I want to emphasize that the o- the only novel thing about playfic is that uh, is that it allows you to to write and publish these games uh, on the web but all of the tools I'm heavily building it's really glue on top of a bunch of other people's work um, I didn't have to write the JavaScript parser for playing the games. And I didn't have to write uh, the, the compiler that takes the source of those games and turns it into a binary. Uh, all of those tools already existed in some form or another. You, you could download an IDE to write Inform 7 games. And I should, probably, <laughs> I should probably explain really quickly. Inform 7 is one of the most fascinating languages I've ever seen. It is, 
tries on the surface it appears to be natural language uh uh like like sentences or par paragraphs of english prose <laughs> and that's the source code so so when you're when you're writing an inform 7 game and this is this is why I wanted to do it in the first place because it was just so fascinating and weird uh, to me to to read a source code, and the source code says things like, uh, "I'm going to read you source code from a game that my nephew uh, Cooper wrote." Uh, the uh, uh, the entrance is south of the cave. The cave. The cave is west of the corridor. The corridor is a room. In this room, there is a sign. Type, examine sign or X sign to examine the sign. The sign is fixed in place in the corridor. It is scenery. The description of the sign is, you are reading the sign. The next room is above you. Type up to go up. Close quotes. That's a map, a command that is... <laughs> I mean, this is... this is uh, So you're basically... Uh, uh, you're, you're writing these... What looks like sentences and paragraphs of, of, of English text. And sort of is. But it, it really... It's deceiving because it... Uh, that then gets compiled... Like, it, it gets compiled into... Uh, into a, a, a game code. Uh, so it really has to be very, very specific. There's a specific syntax that it's expecting. When you're, when you're reading it, it looks pretty sensible, but you can't just sit down and write out blah, blah, blah. There's a, uh, you know, it, it really needs to be in Inform 7 language. So, so uh, there's a learning curve, um, but it's just this weird, and it's written for this one thing, which is like for this very niche purpose for writing interactive fiction games i was gonna wonder i was gonna wonder if it, there was like a a markdown for this or something like you know do you put a a pound sign hashtag at the start of a, you know a new room description or something but it sounds like it's just this crazy regex that just like rips all that stuff out of formatted paragraphs i'd i have no idea how the compiler works uh i know some of i like i know how some of inform sevens uh commands and syntax and, and logic and, and how that works but it's really a strange uh it's a strange thing and and one one thing that is unusual about playfic is that uh uh any of the games that you write you do it all in a browser you're you're writing these games you're experimenting and uh and once you publish something every single game or whatever it is uh, that's on the site you can view the source of uh, there's a little link to like view the game source oh, cool. and so you can see uh on every single thing that was published through there uh, uh you can see how it works and then copy it and make you know sort of remix it yourself uh, glitch style <laughs> yeah i'll say it's like glitch um, of text <laughs> but uh but yeah it's been it's a it's a it, the the impulse for that was that i loved so I love the I love the interactive fiction community, and at the time that I built it, Inform Seven I think was probably the most popular tool for writing interactive fiction games, parser-based uh, interactive fiction. Uh, it may still be the most popular for writing parser-based interactive fiction. I think Twine uh, as a tool has probably possibly has has surpassed it in popularity now, which is very different. But uh, but I loved Inform Seven. It was so fascinating to me. the The problem was that you had to download an IDE, uh, write your a very good IDE, but you had to you had to download this development environment. You had to write your games in there, then compile it, then put the put the compiled file somewhere publicly. Uh, someone wrote a JavaScript interpreter, so you could you could play it in a browser. Before there was a JavaScript interpreter, you had to even like down you download the game from somewhere and then run it in a uh, in some sort of interpreter on your local machine. And so my goal in building Playfic was like let me just make the glue so that someone can do this entirely in a browser, write a game, test the game, publish the game, and then share a link, a URL, and you'd immediately be able to load up and play uh, whatever it was. Um, and uh, yeah, so it launched, uh, what did I say, in 2012? In 2012. Um, and uh, I worked on it with, uh, with my nephew. He wrote, he wrote a bunch of the sample games. Uh, and uh and that's it i mean it has it's it it there's it has a pretty bare bones design it's like bootstrap uh circa circa 2012 you know it it's uh php and mysql it was like just get something minimal enough to be able that, that people would be able to to use and i built some uh i built some little uh 
like I track, I track, you know, the number of plays, I track, uh, the length of games and various things. So I can, so I can show, you know, the, uh, like recently popular games. I can show the games that have just been published, the, the kind of most, the longest, which is not, or it's really, when I say longest games, it's like the number of characters. Uh, but that kind of ends up being a good sense of how complex, uh, of a, of a game there is. And, uh, yeah, so so that was a thing, uh, and then it ended up being here. I'm just gonna do a quick a quick look because I have no idea. Uh, there have been so far, uh, I, think I was gonna do a count, but I think that might take too long for me to do on the podcast. Um, I mean, there have been there have been thousands. I I I, I, I don't know exactly how many, but. Uh, a lot of people have made games through this and a lot of them are just tests. They're just like trying stuff out. They're, they're curious what the thing is, but they publish, you know, they publish. Something. <laughs> oh, the longest games are the number of characters in the story. Uh, the number of, of typed characters. Number of typed characters. <laughs> when when the, you're like, huh, you track how many like grooves there are. Yeah, many, which, uh, it's not, that's not plausible. 200,000 characters is a really complex story. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. <laughs> character character um it's funny you were downplaying your uh, involvement or or the uh, technical um uh i guess advancedness of playfic when really i think a lot of the biggest web projects really come down to me or you or paul ford or evan williams or somebody just going looking at a problem going i know what i can build a content management system to solve that problem (laughs) like i think 50 percent at least of all the things you love on the web are just someone who built a content management system around yeah, something. I just, I, 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 to me, it was just, I, I, nothing like it existed. And I was like, if I can, if I can help here and then any inform seven game, uh, I also compile like every extension, <laughs> like I have every extension available in the, in the interpreter that was, uh, created and, uh, contributed by the, uh, by the inform seven community. Uh, and so, Pretty much every Inform Seven game, pre-existing Inform Seven game, can be basically just pasted into into Playfic, and and it should compile. I just looked it up, and there's thirty, uh, almost thirty five hundred games uh, so far. Now a lot of those, like I said, are kind of tests uh, and so on, but they're all they're all ones that have been published, not ones that people are just previewing and doing their own internal testing. And what's incredible is like seeing over time. I haven't touched this. I, I basically haven't touched it since it launched, uh, except for adding the extensions. And I just you know. It's a thing I put out there. I don't have time uh, to really do do a lot. There's a lot that I would like to do, but I, I just don't have time. And but it has it finds its own audience in weird ways. Um, the most the thing that I've noticed the most is uh, is it getting picked up by uh, teachers and they have their students use it for for you know writing projects. Uh, I've seen it used for fan fiction. So, like, someone wants to write something in the My Little Pony you know, <laughs> universe, and they go write a thing. Uh, I've seen I've seen people you know make their their like bedroom, you know, like they describe their bedroom in detail. Or I've seen I've seen it used for uh, kind of history and architecture related thing. Which you'd be like architecture? Hmm. Why would you do that? But they'd be they want to tell a story about a place. Uh, so it's, you know, that was part of the idea was just to, you know, kind of lean into the, the democratizing, you know, nature of these tools and just make it a, just a little bit easier to be able to play with a, with a thing. You should have made a search for it so I could see if there's like... Yep. There's a lot of things I should have, should have done. Surprise! there isn't like a my brother and my brother and me universe like that you live in game. Like that seems like something someone would build. Wow, there's a lot of a lot of them called escape. There's a lot of escape. They are very games. well, maybe. Um, the I, I I think the the most useful view is the most played because that kind of shows yeah. how you know what this thing ended up being being used for uh, in a lot of ways. Um, cool. So yeah, like I see, I see uh, uh, someone made a geography uh, one. It's kind of like a quiz where you. It's called Miss, Mrs. Crabtree's Geography Class. And you are, you have to make your way from uh, your current state in the United States. Oh. So basically, a US, a U.S. map covers the, black, the blackboard. There's a marker that you can connect states with. Um, and so you, it tells, so you start, here you start in West Virginia, 
I don't know if you start there every time. I just started right. in Maine. Okay. So here I'm in West Virginia, and it says I have 47 to visit before Mrs. Crabtree will give me a gold star. And so it says I can visit from West Virginia. I can visit Pennsylvania, Maryland, Kentucky, Ohio, and Virginia. Now the goal is from memory to try to to try to map your way through as many of the states as you can. That's uh, hard. Hard, right? Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, so I never, never would have envisioned, like, what a weird thing. And how was this even used? Uh, I mean, it's by, by, by you know, reg- outside, like, views numbers, it's not super impressive. It's been played 8,100 times. But that's a geography quiz that's entirely text-based parser, you know, that was played 8,100 times. There, there's, uh, it's the basically a Tron cycle game, right? Like I, uh, um, as I'm making my way around the country, I can't double back on myself too much. I can't right. hit into a, a dead end. It's like a snake game, but it's it's snake played played via text in the U.S. states. This is so uh, hard. <laughs> the fourth, the fourth most popular is a is a game by someone who calls himself Allison, and it's uh, it's called Sherlock Holmes and the Indecipherable Cipher, and it's set in. Uh, the Sherlock uh, universe. So the modern, kind of the modern BB, is the BBC uh, Sherlock. Uh, with well, like the first time I opened, I was like, I was like, uh, uh, you can see John Watson, a desk on which is a laptop, uh, <laughs> a fireplace, and a mirror. And I was like, a lap, a laptop in Sherlock Holmes. And I was like, oh, it's you know. So I, I, I just examined the laptop, and it says uh, a nondescript-looking Mac notebook currently displaying John's blog. The title of the most. <laughs> The most recent post is Great Detective Baffled. Sherlock trips up on a simple cipher. You snort in disgust. So it's just cool to see how these were these were played. You can view the game source to see how a thing was written uh, behind the scenes. And uh, yeah, it's just a, it's just one of the projects that I kind of I keep it running. I move servers and I, and I make sure I can get it get it up and running every time. Uh, but you know, yeah, it's a Jesus, the source code to it is it's shocking it's so simple it's like it is pure text i mean it's formatted but like it's remarkable how much it looks like an essay it's deceptively simple yeah if you sit down and just tried to write it without having a manual uh you will you'll fail because it is it's much more complicated than than i would say like edit a wikipedia page for a like famous person these days and um the edit page no longer looks like english there's so many conventions of like how you're supposed to be doing footnotes and there's a lot of there's a lot of conventions but all of that is markup uh this is this is this is like a hidden it's it's almost like world it's like world definition uh, uh, for with even things like physics and liquids and you know npcs and like you can define all of the relationships for these these for this world using declarative sentences so you can say like you know this is not actual syntax but you could say uh you know that there's there's a a a cup sitting on a desk in the in the cup there is a there is a liquid the liquid can be you know ingested it can be poured it can be like you can describe all these yeah, properties yeah. drink and, and uh you know and once once you drink it then the thing is no it doesn't exist anymore or like if there's an apple and you eat it and then it no longer exists in the world so it's like defining all, all of these there's these these sort of properties of the world and then you can go even deeper and modify the physics of the world if you go deeper and know what you're doing uh so yeah it's uh inform seven is pretty cool but uh, but just to emphasize again it's one of many different ways of making uh interactive fiction uh you know people write their own engines they use pre-existing tools there's a lot of different tools and platforms uh for doing these things inform seven is one of the hard, probably one of the harder uh uh ones to use at this point um something something like twine is far more accessible and has opened up uh choice back choice based interactive fiction has has even further democratized the entire thing and made it more accessible and so you'll see IF comp now um will have in the past it would be you know 95% of the games would be parser based interactive fiction and and that has that shift has happened where where you're seeing uh first you you would see like I want to say that a majority of them now are uh, majority of the entries are are choice based, and for the first time, I think two years ago, uh, a a work of non parser based, like a a, a non parser based work of interactive fiction, won uh, the IF comp. Um, 
there's some amazing work happening there with uh, some with custom engines written in JavaScript, some you know uh, using existing platforms. But there's there's a lot of really cool stuff happening Whoa. in that world. Twine is like graphical, nice. Can be. Uh, I yeah, think the, yeah. the templates are just text, but it's easy enough to. I mean, it's all. There's little apps for it. Um, so, like in your, I mean, I assume you don't play any of those um, Infocom titles that you're keeping on your bookshelves, and they're all available in emulators I have been, and stuff. I, I acquired most of the ones that you saw. I have about, uh, I have over twenty of them now, um, and most of them were acquired in one lucky Craigslist get. Oh, uh, really? Uh, a couple years ago, one single owner uh, had bought them as they came out, one by one, played them, and then packed them away. Uh, in a closet, and I managed to. I got very lucky one day. Was that the, that was the time you were describing? It sounded like you were going to get jumped, yeah. or yeah. <laughs> it sounded like a ripoff. It sounded like a honeypot for Andy Bayo in Portland to say, "Hey, I've got all these great adventure games in original boxes for like what, like two hundred bucks or something for everything." It was something yeah. cheap, right? Yeah, like that sounds like beat Andy over the head with a bat <laughs> and steal everything. Yeah, it definitely felt like a honeypot. Like it was too perfect, too perfect for me. And there was no photo of it, the, like in the listing. I just took took a gamble and ended up I assume you're buying them one on one on eBay. Uh, no, most of them. Uh, I mean, I, I I have done a little bit of that, but most of them were kind of acquired in one in one go. And like I said, I I was growing up towards the end of that era. Those games, uh, like the the Zork two that I got was the game had been out for years. Uh, you know, at, at, at that point. And so it was, they, they would publish these, they would do various reissues. And that, that one that I had didn't, didn't have any feelies. It was just like the thin, you know, folio, I think I, they call them. Um, so I didn't, I, the only, uh, the only of the original Infocom games that I had like the full thing, uh, like everything for was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, but most of those games were like leaving the stores by the time that I mm-hmm. had the resources, you know, and, and a, uh, to be able to 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 buy them, um, so I was buying games like, you know, Maniac Mansion, and then later like you know Secret Monkey Island, and games like that, graphical uh, point and click adventures. Uh, so for many of these games, I either played them in emulators if I played them at all, uh, uh, and many of them I'd never played. So so I've taken this. I, of course, I could have played them at any point, but uh, but having the box and being able to open it up and look at all the 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 kind of world building stuff and look at the maps and and uh, you know there's there's uh, uh, one game comes with a with an envelope and it and there's like do not open this envelope until the game tells you to and you open it up and there's a letter inside and there's a you know it's a it's a cool thing to kind of play them now uh, and and kind of having the context uh, of the history of these games yeah I think the um... I'm still drawn to them a bit, especially through Slack and stuff when people make um, versions of it for that. That even though we have like high zoot um, video cards, it's still fun to play um, with just uh, reduce a game down to like excellent writing and, you know, no visuals. Uh, you know, the writing is so good that, you know, it sort of evokes this like rich tapestry of story and stuff. Like I'm, I'm amazed by it. Um, I think that's about all we have the time for. Uh, when did, when was the deadline for signing up for EXO? When's that going to close? The, uh, so yeah, uh, survey's open, uh, June 19th. Uh, the cutoff is, uh, June 29th, Friday, June okay. 29th at noon. Sweet. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Andy. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Fireside.fm, the uh, podcast host for this show, and uh, just a great, simple-to-use app for podcasting. If you're into it, check it out at Fireside.fm. Thanks. Thanks.